today on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Stress is always individual, within reason. There are common stressors. If you have stressors that are very violent, then it affects all of us. But many stressors and loud noise can be a high stressor for me, but somebody who's going to a heavy metal concert may love it. It's always your interpretation of it to a large extent. And the piece under stress is always that mind and body are really always connected. Every thought has a corresponding body activity and every body activity has a corresponding thought and emotion. It'll affect the process. It's a two-way street. That is the underlying thing. Well, hello there. I'm your host for today, Dr. Kate Henry. And today we're interviewing Dr. Eric Pepper, an internationally known expert on holistic health, stress management, and tech stress, which is also the name of his book. He's also an expert in biofeedback. Dr. Pepper received his BA from Harvard University in 1968 and his PhD from Union Graduate School in 1975. Since 1976, he's taught at San Francisco State University, where he was instrumental in establishing the Institute for Holistic Health Studies, the first holistic health program at a public university in the US. Dr. Pepper is the president of the Biofeedback Foundation of Europe, the former president of the Association of Applied Psychophysiology and Biofeedback, and of the Biofeedback Society of California. He was also the sports psychologist for the U.S. Olympic gymnastics team for four years. Dr. Pepper is the author of Tech Stress, How Technology is Hijacking Our Lives, Strategies for Coping, and Pragmatic Ergonomics. He talks to us today about the stress that technology can put on our bodies, not just psychologically, but physiologically, including things like eye strain and posture and how it affects kids' developmental health. He also goes through strategies to counter that tech stress and talks to us a lot about the science of biofeedback and how it can help you be more resilient. Before we get started, I want to talk to you about something that comes up pretty often on this podcast. And that, of course, is lab testing. You see, testing is one essential way to understand the root cause of an illness. If you're an integrative or functional medicine practitioner, chances are you're placing a ton of orders with a ton of different labs. The Root Cause Medicine podcast is created by Rupa Health. Rupa is the best way to order, manage, and track results from over 30 different labs in one single place for free. Thank goodness. No need to create and log into multiple portals ever again. If you're a practitioner, make sure you go sign up at rupahealth.com to create your free account today. While you're there, you can also try out our latest tools like the meal plan generator and lab shops, which make practicing functional medicine easier than ever. So cool. Now let's start the show. Dr. Eric Pepper, welcome to the Root Cause Medicine Podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me, Kate. It's such a pleasure. I am really glad you're here. You have written a phenomenal book on the role of technology and stress in our lives and what we can do about it. Before we dive in, because you have so much information to share with us, I just want to ask you, what's the two most important things you want folks to take from this podcast today? The two most important things are that one, we are automatically captured by our technology, which we almost have no choice about because it really is an evolutionary trap. It captures our patterns and we react. That's one. Two, there are many things we can do to both optimize our health and be highly productive at the computer without getting problems with our eyes, without getting problems with our neck and shoulders, or even with children increasing the risk of ADHD. Let's dive into it. In your book, you say technology is hijacking our lives. 
What do you mean by that? Technology does hijack it. If you go back 20,000 years ago, you walk along the savannah, you see something on the side of you, you have to automatically react. You look, because this could be dangerous or useful. It is a biological pattern. Today, our computer screens do that, and they keep activating us. That's one. Two, we keep sitting the whole day. We sit in front of the screen, stare nearby, and we stay slightly activated. We be slightly quicker. And then we end up at night being exhausted and tired. And when you say activated, what does that mean physiologically? It really means that if you look at that, the heart rate may go up a little bit. Definitely your neck and shoulder tension goes up. And the key is we are not aware. If you're sitting and you're holding your cell phone, which now many of us do many hours a day, what happens is we do have to tighten our shoulder a little bit. We don't know we do that. Then we have to look down. We don't know we do that. But in this case, we put our body in a posture that really is a defense posture. And if we did that for a long time, it even affects our thinking. Okay. You discussed this concept of tech stress, and it seems that envelops a lot of what you're talking about right now. Can you talk us through tech stress and how it manifests? Tech stress is a whole big ball game. It is the physiology, how you're sitting in front of your screen or on you're holding your cell phone. That's one. That means my neck and shoulders are tighter without knowing because I'm leaning, my head leans forward. It now weighs an equivalent of 45 pounds for the muscles in the back of my neck. That's one. Two, I'm captured all the time. I keep reacting and reacting. And that activates our sympathetic system, gets us more at risk. Three, our attention span has shifted. Four, we lose the social connections with each other. We think that we are really more connected with cell phones or with social media. Yes, it's remarkable. It's useful. But there's something really different to be back and forth with somebody. Asynchronous communication is different than synchronous communication. We see an increase in depression. We see an increase in anxiety. We see an increase in symptoms. And then on top of that, we have sitting disease. And we have no idea that's part of the result of just the act of sitting in front of a computer or looking at my cell phone the whole day, it's most impressive. You have written a book that really ties together the effects of technology on our bodies holistically. I hear a lot of people talking about one article will be about eye strain. Another article will be about attention. Your book unites them all. What's the thread that makes tech stress affect every system of our body like that? Because it's really the activation of our evolutionary survival patterns. Let me do an example of the albatross. It's a horrible example in a way. You go to Midway Island in the Pacific. It's thousands of miles away from everywhere else. And now you walk along the beach and you see all these skeletons of these albatrosses. It's just shocking. And then all the flesh has been eaten up by whatever animals or bacteria. And what is left is the skeleton, the feathers, and the content of their internal digestive tract, which are all pieces of plastic. These birds have died basically of eating plastics. How did they do that? The albatross were flying over the Pacific, looking for something shimmering in the water. There they saw something and they dove at that because that used to be a fish, food. And they would then eat this. And that, because of survival, the ones who could do that best, their genes survived. They, gave, they had more chicks. There were more albatrosses. Now the similar albatross now flies over the water, sees in the Pacific gyres where all the waste of the plastics are. It's shimmering. It's a piece of plastic. They don't know that. They dive, they swallow it and taste it because it's coated with algae. They ingest it and they now go back and regurgitate their chicks or continue to eat it themselves 
and now they die. Are they to blame that their survival processes, which allowed them to survive for eons, is now hijacked by the plastic? And I would argue, no. It's that we have polluted the environment. In the same way, there are patterns like that in our body. I call these evolutionary traps. It's like looking at changing signals. If I do a clap, at this moment, you orient. You have almost no choice, unless you are deaf. <laughs> but you would react. And that happens to our eyes the same way. We see stimuli on the screen. I'm automatically captured. When I look at the screen right now, I see you without knowing. I'm looking at your face. I see how you're reacting or responding. And that react makes reactions with me. The computer screen, our computer games, the rapid reactiveness and all this capture our attention. Let me make one more point about attention. Our attention has changed. It's most shocking. It used to be the average person in 2000 could hold their attention for about 150 seconds. And then you would think of something else. If I asked you to even read something, after about 150 seconds, you start to think of an association or do something. Now it's 36 seconds. And we all know this because we watch movies of the 1940s and 50s. My gosh, are those slow movies. You listen to the music, it's a similar rhythm. However, when it goes so fast, quick, it's very hard to regenerate. Life is the alternation between excitation and regeneration. When we are excited continuously, we don't take time to regenerate. And that is one of the problems which is screened us to our vision, to our thoughts. And paradoxically, our bodies are just sitting under slight tension the whole time. And then I may get symptoms. Yeah. I'm curious, what made you write this book when you did? I teach students <laughs> at San Francisco State, and we have many students who have computer symptoms. And many years earlier, I started this work accidentally because somebody had a client and they said, can you work with this person? I'm going on vacation. I said, sure. And the person had massive neck and shoulder pains. And at this time, people were really using computers. And the person has already had an ergonomist adjust all the perfect ways. They had the right chair. They had the right keyboard. They were at the right distance. And yet they keep having symptoms. What people didn't realize is that having the correct chair gives you the opportunity to sit correctly. It doesn't mean you will. All of a sudden, when we then monitor physiologically, and that's where the biofeedback is so useful. Biofeedback is a tool that monitors what happens inside your body. It can show it on a screen or on your cell phone or whatever. And it makes you aware of what you're unaware of. Then we noticed that when the person was working at the keyboard unknowingly, and not even the therapist could easily see that, was that their shoulders slightly tightened and when they brought their hands to the keyboard, even if they weren't typing, and they held it slightly tight the whole time. Or does the interior deltoid it? Or their head goes slightly more forward? Or when they're looking at the screen, they're not blinking. Once we identified that, then we realized that people were unaware and they needed to learn to become aware and interrupt those patterns. That was the beginning. With biofeedback, you can monitor the shoulders. You can teach people to drop them. You can now also show that you can sit differently. And it's even with vision. Think about that. We spend our time looking at screens. And what is the distance of the screen? Maybe a foot and a half, two feet on the average. We spend most of our time that way. And if you're a young child, that means the eyes are still developing. Now you're mainly looking at screens. Now the focal length for the child will really be two feet. Now they become nearsighted. And if you are a Singaporean, a child in Singapore, 
80% of the children by the time they're in high school have to wear corrective glasses. And even in the US, since the pandemic and people are much more in front of screens even, it just meant that the children were looking at the screen and you saw a significant increase in young children needing corrective glasses. Wow. And now you say, so what? Getting early myopia may mean later that you're more at risk of detached retinas or even possibly even some degeneration of the retina. All of a sudden, it's much more than that. I'll do one more and then I'll stop. It's just sitting. What we do is we are sitting and sitting and sitting much more, including old children. We know that. The data is overwhelming. In the most interesting Swedish study, where they looked at, for many years ago, when the Sweden still had the draft, that they looked at all the young men, I presume they were young men, who went to the draft. And then they could identify the young men who, although they all entered the military, there were some young men who were physically really almost unfit and some young men who were very fit. Now they followed these young men 40 years out. And then they found out that the young people who at their, about age 20 or so when they joined the military were more physically unfit. They had, very le- they had much less physical development or exercise during childhood, were going to develop dementia much earlier. All of a sudden, our sitting in front of the screens, not being physically active, may also increase the risk, for my bias, of developing dementia. I'm curious. I know that you are trained in physiology and biofeedback. The connection between being sedentary and having an increased risk of dementia may make sense to you. But can you explain to our listeners why that connection is logical? Ask yourself, why did animals develop brains? If you, a nervous system. In, if you take the model of evolution, which as a biologist is a working model for me, a useful theory, then if I think about it, I have single cells, then they become multi-cells. But why in that process did the cells or these organisms develop a nervous system? And the best answer for that is you need a nervous system to coordinate the pieces, to develop coordination. Basically, our brain is structured intrinsically to develop coordination of the body, of the arms, legs, all the limbs, the whole system. When you deprive that, you really are reducing the brain development. Or maybe another way to think about it, if I do less of this, I have less connections in the brain. And then if damage occurs or an illness occurs, there's less resilience or less reserves. And there's some suggestive evidence. I've heard you say there are so many things we can do about tech stress, and you've mentioned a few already. Taking breaks, running up and down the stairs a few times a day, making sure that you look far away multiple times a day. What are some of the other things that people can do to help reduce the impact of tech stress on their lives? I think there one is to time limit. At least if you look at it, what tech stress does, even now, especially with social media, use your cell phone. And we all are basically addicted to our cell phones. We take it to dinner, we take it to lunch or whatever. And if I look at parents with little babies walking around, then often what happens if baby's in the carriage and the parents is on the cell phone, looking at the cell phone and not connecting with the child. And that is already a breaking of that social connective link. Children want attention. They need attention, don't even want. And yet we disconnect. And then you see the child getting more upset or dissociating. The data is quite good on that. What do you want to do? Say tech is useful. Heck, email, Instagram, TikTok, whatever. They're great. However, put limitations for yourself. When you meet with people for dinner, put your cell phone in a locker, put it away. Don't put it in your pocket because the moment it vibrates in your pocket without any awareness, 
you will ask, I wonder who is that? And the studies have shown, even if your cell phone is on the tabletop, without knowing, your eyes will look at it for a moment and you have this impulse, I want to reach out, maybe I missed something on media. We are really conditioned that way. In that sense, one, in social meetings, in social gatherings, turn off your cell phone, put it away so it's not in your visual piece. That includes for people for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Many families right now don't even have those rituals anymore. I would reestablish those rituals as well. I think that's one. And two, organize taking many breaks at work. I don't mean, it doesn't have to be long, but momentary. Do a lots of movement. Three, really observe your posture. That's partly ergonomics. Because if I slouch and collapse, what happens is that I have much more access to hopeless, helpless thoughts, as we have described in the book and our data. And if I sit up, the world is more looking up. Let me do this as a little experiment, if that's useful. All you do is you just let yourself slouch. Put yourself in a letter C, slouch down, looking down. And now in this position, you just evoke only hopeless, helpless, powerless, defeated memories, one after the other. Just keep evoking those. Ideally, you do this for 30 seconds. We'll do this just for a short moment. In this slouched position, looking down, like a let your whole body's like a letter C, you evoke hopeless, helpless, powerless, defeated memories. Keep doing that. Now don't change your position. Hold the position the same way. Now evoke only optimistic and empowering memories. Optimistic and empowering memories in this slouched position. Keep holding that position. Keep evoking those memories. And now I'd like you to change your posture. Sit up, your arch back almost. Look slightly up, not way up, but slightly that your eyes are slightly above the horizon. You can even let your hands give palms up, sitting on your lap, you're leaning open and back and look up slightly. You're nice and tall and erect. And now while looking up, evoke only hopeless, helpless, powerless, defeated memories, one after the other. Hopeless, helpless, keep evoking those. And then we would continue this for about 30 seconds or so. But now hold that same up position, looking up, and now evoke only optimistic and positive empowering memories. Optimistic, empowering, positive memories, looking up. Great. We would do this much longer. And did you notice a difference in the ease by which memories were accessed? And what did you experience then? It seemed like when I was bent over, it was a lot harder to feel hopeful and excited. And then vice versa, when I was sitting upright, it was actually harder to feel hopeless and helpless. Thank you. That's what our research has shown eloquently time and time again with young people, with older people, all ages and across all literally ethnicities, that when you're slouching, collapsing, it is easier to evoke hopeless, helpless, powerless memories. And it's just harder to evoke the optimistic, empowering memories. And we've shown it also by recording the electrical activity of the brain with the work with my colleagues in Taiwan. And when you're sitting up, what you just experienced, it isn't that you cannot evoke hopeless, powerless memories. You're slightly more distant from it, a little further away. It's easy to be apart from versus being slouched. And when you're looking up, it was just easier to think of optimistic memories. And now think what has happened in our culture. We have seen a 20%, we have seen, this, I would say, massive increase in depression since the pandemic among young people. It's really shocking. We see an increase in anxiety and depression. However, I argue it is not the pandemic. The 
pandemic aggravated what was going on and made it much worse. Because there's something called the Facebook effect, which was shown to be causal. The Facebook effect is the phenomenon that when Facebook was first in, occurred at Harvard University, only Harvard University had it and Zuckerberg did it. Then it selectively went to different universities. Now, many years later, researchers at MIT said, huh, we could see if there's a causal effect or to the Facebook effect that people get more anxiety and depression. Because now we can compare two different colleges or universities, one that gets the Facebook and the other one yet didn't. And now we can look at the health records from the student health records. And then we can look at what happens to those records when the other college also gets Facebook. And then what you see is when Facebook was implemented at college level, you saw a 7% increase in severe depression among students and a 20% increase in anxiety. That was already occurring since 2009 or earlier. And that pattern was going on. So now we have many young people which have issues like this. And if you look at the mental health status, then you see that mental health, the negative side of mental health status, is most prevalent during the pandemic also. You look at this curve from about 19, 2010 to 2020, or 2022, that includes the pandemic, and you see that for young people, ages 18 to 24, their mental health decreases significantly, gets much worse. For people who are from 24 to, I think, 30, you see some increase. And for people over 40, there's no effect. I want you to talk about sleep for a moment. You said sleep is one of the underlying root causes of so many of our illnesses today. Why is that? Sleep allows you to regenerate. And we know that if you don't have sleep, you will die. You look at the people in the 19, was it 50s and 60s? 50s when they used to have these programs on the radio where the disc jockeys would stay awake for many hours, for days, like for five days in a row, who could set a new world record. After that, many had very dysfunctional lives. That is such a stressor for the body. You need sleep. And if you look at most illnesses, or if you look at sleep disturbance is most difficult. Think of yourself if you travel, you go to Asia or to Europe, you get jet lag. What happens? Do you feel really good that next day? Even though it's exciting, you feel out of sorts. Now imagine having that be your normal life without knowing after a while. That's what sleep disturbances do. It's much harder to restore your health. And then the other side, if you sleep too much, that's associated also with depressions, like hiding away from the world. Whatever. That's a pretty good medium. What's the medium? How much sleep is too much? How much is not enough? And what's the ideal amount of sleep? There's never one answer. A damn. <laughs> because people are individuals. Some people literally need eight, 10 hours of sleep every night. And some people probably need only four. It also depends how you use yourself during the day. Some people, when you go to sleep, you keep worrying all the time. And some people, when they go to sleep, their brain just is empty totally. They just fall asleep and restfully. Those are all factors that are involved in it. It also means if you did exercise or not. Now, what is your appropriate sleep? Assume you're happy in the world, somewhat happy. Go to bed. Don't use your alarm clock. Go to bed at the same time and then see what time you wake up and see that in a number of days. And for most people, it runs about seven, eight hours for most people. It depends also on the light. For many people, if the light turns on in the room, then they wake up more easily. If they stay totally dark, they tend to sleep longer. And you can use that phenomena as well because when you use an alarm clock, what happens is sometimes you wake up really feeling refreshed almost, and sometimes you feel like, oh, like this. 
And that it depends at what stage of sleep you wake up. The classic way to solve that problem, you can use a sunrise alarm clock in which what you do is as the time you want to wake up, the light in your room gets more and more brighter and brighter. That usually will signal to the body, ah, it's time to wake up. And then you wake up at a stage of sleep when you feel most alert. It's a cheap way out. What are the other technological advances that you think can help humans be healthier? I think tech can be very useful for self-monitoring. For example, we do some work both with posture, where you're using a little device you put in your spine, and that every time you tilt forward or slouch, it would vibrate your spine, and that would remind you, wait a minute, ah, I just reacted. And in our studies, when we have done that, I'm impressed time and time again how people's health improve, because we're not aware. I'm not aware that I'm slouching. I'm not aware. But if I now put a little device on my spine, which is tech, it's an app on my cell phone, then I can calibrate. Now I sit up erect. Now I know what being tall is. Now I start getting involved. I get captured. And then it goes, Burr! or I may have some depressive thoughts. I collapse. It vibrates. Or I'm reaching for something. Now I can use that to identify what's going on. And if I find the more hopeless, depressive thoughts, then I can start changing this language. If I find that I'm being vibrated (laughs) and I'm tired, okay, maybe I need to get up and move or take a mini nap or do something. And if I find all the time I look at the screen like this, where I'm leaning forward, it may mean I need new glasses or ergonomics. And that combines that with breathing as well, because when you slouch forward, as we described, almost you could say you compress your abdomen. The abdomen can't really be compressed because it's liquid. But that means that when you're breathing, you can only breathe more in your chest. That tends to lead to neck and shoulder tensions, slightly shallower breathing, also possibly more GI distress. Therefore, if you can be more erect, you can also learn to breathe lower and slower. That is one example of tech. Another example using smartphones or any of the tech is that of feedback on your physiology or teaching yourself how to breathe differently, how to have You can breathe slower, that you can use the tech to monitor your own breathing patterns. There's an app called FlowMD that monitors that. You can hold the cell phone, you put the camera on your finger, it will measure your heart rate, it will look at your heart rate variability, which is a measure that your heart rate goes up and then goes down. And if you breathe about six breaths a minute slowly, you get this increased pattern. And that would be a sign of more balance. But you can use tech many different ways. I use tech when I'm cooking and I say, hey, Siri, or hey, Google, set timer five minutes. There are many advantages. It's a great way if you travel. It depends. I do believe human beings are social critters. And the most important predictor of health is social connectiveness. And we know that children, and this is out of research studies, not ours, I wish we had done those, that if you look at children, you have them rate or their parents rate their social interaction and connectiveness over dinner and all that stuff. The children who have the least social connectiveness are the highest tech users, are involved in the highest tech, and they have more ill health. There's nothing wrong with tech, but I would say for children, tech is not useful. For a little baby, they need human interaction and not their cell phone or their pad, their tablet, which the parents give them to entertain. Have them first develop all the motor skills, the interaction, and the risk-taking. You have to learn to fall from a tree limb, and it helps you develop balance and other things. And the final piece in this 
is we forget that if I look at how we attend to the world, what allowed you to be successful, my guess, is when you went to school and through life, is that you over time could direct your own attention to something where you wanted to go. That meant your attention went from the inside. And even though the material you had to study, sometimes was difficult or boring or whatever, you could still drive yourself and hold your attention there. You trained your attentional set from the inside to go outward. What do computer games do? What do much of tech do? What does Instagram do? It is uses a trigger to, tri to evoke your attention and capture it. It's the opposite process of attention in a way. In a sense, it's almost the activation of the arousal, the fight-flight response that activates me to look, which is totally different than how you control your own attention. It's no wonder, I think, that we have an increase now in ADHD in the last 15 years or so, where the rate went from one child per 150 to one per 36. And there are many other factors. They include diet. Life is much more complex. I like places where people can have control, where you can have control. I can't control the whole world. I wish I could, but I don't. I'm not delusional on that part. What can you do yourself to optimize your health? You mentioned training your own attention. How would someone go about doing that? You covertly do this. If you're reading and you're reading a book, you still have to bring your eyes to the text time and time again. So you're training that implicitly. You do motor tasks. You put stuff together and you do that. And kids training attention when you're out in the nature. What are you looking for? Can you be looking? Can you be exploring? If I look for worms, let's say I like worms or little, little kids, then the child has to attend to look at the ground to search for that or for a leaf. But that's different than when I do a clap. Now you attend, like I said earlier, without doing anything. If all of a sudden a bird moves, it will capture your attention. Can you see the bird sitting on the branch? Can you see the eagle on top of a tree? That is a different kind of attention because there's no stimuli in the periphery that drives you to look. As a parent, if I'm thinking about activities I could have my child do regularly, I'm hearing already, okay, maybe have a weekly go outside and look for worms or go outside and look for birds. What are some other things I could do with my child to help them train their attention? I would say let them be more creative. I think the other part from my perspective, to me, that's the difference between play when you give little children toys or objects, they can make one little piece and make it become almost anything. They can play. That is creating their, they are in fact training their creativity or their visualization or their imagery. When you think of play, it is where you are playing, you're creating. And with children, you don't often need very expensive, fancy objects. You do a storytelling and they can make a whole play and all of a sudden this block becomes a person, becomes a horse or whatever. You can move it back and forth. They can create their own world. And I think all children need that. And that fits our natural historical perspective, how we learned. How did we learn? We learned via an oral tradition. People did storytelling. When you do storytelling, you allow the brain to create its own images to the story. And how many people have read a book? They read a great book and then they saw the movie and the movie just wasn't quite like the book. It isn't, it wasn't like the book. It is that in their own brain, they created all these images. And that is a way in creative process. But what happens when we watch, and I watch videos, our auditory channel is still the same because that's how information was all, has been transmitted for thousands of generations. But now 
We don't create our own imagery anymore. Now we see it in front of us. We really block that part. We don't develop that part as much. And then I think we also become slightly more passive. In some sense, if I see a lot of violence on television, what happens is I can see violence and I keep sitting in my chair. And that means that when I'm in the real world and I see violence, I've conditioned myself not to react. And I do think content of media has an impact on people. That's my delusion, not my... I think otherwise advertising, nobody would spend billions of dollars on advertising. What the content shapes your worldview to a certain extent. And I think we need to be careful in content, especially for adults as well for children. Creative time, allowing the child to hear a story and envision their own images with it rather than being fed images, maybe from a TV or computer screen. And having played with other kids and boredom is something that should not exist for little kids. If kids are bored, they need to play. They'll figure out a game to play themselves. But what we do as parents, the moment the kid is bored, we put him in front of TV or in front of something. to give him an electronic toy. I think I don't see that as being helpful for my bias, for my perspective. I take an evolutionary perspective. And the evolutionary perspective really says that we have evolved really by natural selection. Behaviors that allowed us to thrive and survive are those behaviors and biological and psychological qualities that we now have. And then any big change we do that are not congruent to that probably leads to ill health. And I can do this in foods. I can think of all the changes in artificial, we think of super highly processed foods which never occurred before, all the additives, and almost all are harmful for the GI tract over time. I mean, that's a very narrow perspective, but I think health occurs much more by keeping a, being aware of our evolutionary background. And that's very difficult because what was that? My memory is only since I was six or seven. We take an outside view and ask, and that includes, think of the, we tend to move episodically. We exercised, not exercised, we walked. And then we ran for a short moment. Then we rested. We ate fairly whole foods. We used our jaw a lot in chewing. Babies were not given processed foods. They already gnawing on stuff. And because of that, their jaw was different than people who only get soft foods. The data is overwhelming. Part of the evidence is that for a long time in the 1970s, 80s, we didn't have the kids breastfeed and stuff like this. It meant they were giving a bottle. It meant in sucking, they pulled their jaw in. Their upper palate became different. And now they cannot breathe through their nose. Their jaw, they're called narrow face syndrome. If you go to skeletons in the 16th and 17th century in France, you see all the facial skeletons are different than our modern skeletons. Even though the genetics of the people is the same, because at the, that era, what did kids get? They get the same foods the parents did. And when if you eat, you have to really chew it. And when you chew these muscles tighten, and when you tighten these muscles, the face widens. The palate drops a bit in little kids, in baby, young kids. And therefore, they can breathe more easily through their nose. Therefore, they probably would have slightly less allergies as they grow up. I can keep going. That's all part of our adaptation of tech stress. You have a degree in studying how stress affects the body. <laughs> so can you tell our listeners, how does stress occur and how does it affect our bodies? Stress is always individual within reason. There are common stressors. If you have stressors that are very violent, then it affects all of us. But many stressors and loud noise can be a high stressor for me, but somebody who's going to a heavy metal concert may love it. It's always your interpretation of it to a large extent. 
And the piece under stress is always that mind and body are really always connected. Every thought has a corresponding body activity and every body activity has a corresponding thought and emotion. It will affect the process. It's a two-way street. That is the underlying thing. What does stress? When you think of stress, you can think of stress being many positive. A lot of stress is fun. People go mountain climbing. They wouldn't call it. It could be called stress, but it's fun. It's called you stress. It's mainly stress is usually when the end point is more hopeless and powerless and interrupts what you want to do. And then stress also occurs if you have to do the same thing time and time again, and you get bored. That's another kind of stressor. But biologically, think of stress in the simplest way is that it evokes a fight-flight response, a defense reaction. There's a danger. Our bodies now prepare itself for danger. When our bodies prepare ourselves for danger, think about this, then needs to act. It gives this biological response to run away or fight. It's also possible to just curl up and give a death fainting response, but let's skip that one. Now I'm prepped to run and fight. Think about evolutionary survival now. That is a saber tooth. That's a tiger out there. The tiger, I see the tiger, I react. And now at this moment, my body basically cannibalizes itself so that all the energy goes for me to run away or fight. At that point, why should the body heal itself? Why should it boost its immune system? Why should it digest itself? Why should it reproduce when it's becoming somebody else's lunch? And once you see it that way, in a very simplistic way, it makes sense. It's only when you feel safe, which is different than being relaxed. When you feel safe, does your body really restore itself? We are restoring all the time anyway. But in the extreme way, what does it mean to be safe for you? And if you feel safe, then you can almost feel your, on a biological level, for many people, and they can find that their stomach bubble out at the bottom. I can just let myself go and breathe real easily. Then I can restore. And for many people, sleep then is a time to feel safe and restoration. The simplest way to think is when there's a stressor out there that can be my spouse, it can be the thought of work, it can be sitting in a car and somebody cutting in front of me and my body reacts. At that moment, I'm activated. And then I do two parts. One, my mind then keeps going over it. I keep rehashing it. And every time I rehash it, my body activates more. One is to say it happened. Then I can let it go. If the stressor isn't too intense, I can just smile, take a small low breath, change my body posture from the defense reaction to being open, taking a breath, looking up and smile, say, gosh, I survived this one again. Great. I'm looking forward to the new options. If the stressor is more extreme and I really reacted, probably the easiest way to solve that one is not to yell back at your partner or to your boss. At that moment, you leave and then do some very intense physical exercise. Because the physical exercise will complete the biological response. And only after you've done the exercise do you then go back in discussions. And you can see this in couples work. This is the research done in Seattle and where they monitor couples physiologically so they can look at the heart rate and many other things. And then they interview these couples and then they stress them so they can have a nice argument. And they observe them. And people behave differently. With some couples, one starts getting intense and screaming, nasty, and the other one amplifies and they keep going up and up. And if you look at the heart rate of these couples, then you see the heart rate of one of the people goes up, it goes over 100, and they keep going. Because if you're about 20 or 30% stressed or angry, 
you've lost your cortex. You are now captured by the emotion. If you get too angry, you lose any, because at that moment, there's only one point, and that is immediate survival. All of us have had that experience. Remember when you're arguing with somebody sometimes, and then you really get angry, and then you say something really nasty. I don't know if you ever said that. That's like a knife that goes right into that person. And as the words leave your mouth, you realize, oh, I should never have said that. But those escalations occur. Those couples who keep escalating have very poor prognosis for long-term happiness, often end in divorce. On the other hand, the couple who start the same way, and now the heart rate goes over 100, and the person leaves for a moment, takes a break, does self-soothing, takes time out, gets himself centered again. Those couples have a remarkable success rate by observing it. Because if you get too angry, like I said before, you lose any sense of control. Become aware that you're getting upset at that moment. Say, stop. I'm not saying we should not continue this discussion. I need to first cool off. And that's like what you do with little children. You do timeout. And when I think of that in meetings, I always tell people, when you really get upset, just tell them you need to go to the bathroom. Because that's the only time people allow you to leave a meeting. Oh, gosh, I had too much coffee this morning. I'm sorry, I got to go. I'll be back in a minute or two. And then in the bathroom, you can either do a physical stress or go outside, run up and down the stairs for a moment to complete the alarm reaction and then get centered, breathe lower, look upward and re-enter the meeting. We told everyone at Rupa that you were coming on the podcast. They were so excited. And we had a bunch of questions come in for you, given your background. And I'm wondering if you could take a moment to sure. answer some of them. One of them was, do you think humans are more stressed today than they were 20 years ago? I would say the answer for my perspective is yes, in a way that we have more items, we do more multitasking than 20 or 30 years ago. But it's more the multitasking quality that is eating up our time. And that is stressful. Again, back to the training your attention, putting your phone away, doing one thing at once can help to reduce some of the added stress we've experienced as we have added more technology to our lives. Gotcha. And then what are your favorite actionable ways to teach people to reduce their stress? I think first is just self-awareness and monitoring. Just keep a log and monitor to where you react. Or a great practice we do is I'll call energy drains, energy gains. During the day, keep a little list of events that cause your energy to sink or energy to go up. For some people, answering their email makes their energy go down. That's it. Some just talk to a family member makes their energy go down. It makes a difference what it is. And the same way, list items that give you energy. For some people, talk to a person gives them energy. Make a list what it is. I know for myself, if I'm low and down, if I go swimming or do exercise, my energy always is up afterwards. There are many. When I talk out of a certain family member, when I talk to them, by the end, it's always the language always is but, but, but from there. And I, my energy drains. Once you make that list and you say, okay, what can I do to reduce an energy drain? And how can I increase an energy gain? That means if I, don't, if I find that I don't like cleaning the bathroom, that's a drain, then maybe I can make an agreement with my partner or family members that they do it and I do something else. Or depending on the economics, I hire somebody to do it. There are many different ways. It doesn't always have to cost money. And then implement, but it's behavioral. You have to do it in action. It isn't good enough to think about it. In the same way, if exercise for me gives me more energy, then how do I plan it more? 
And how do I integrate that? And then the question is, for some people like exercise, maybe hard to do by yourself, but if you do it with somebody else, it's easier. Then the task is not to exercise. The task is first to find somebody who will come by to, for you to go for a walk. It's really very pragmatic ways to how do you make small changes in your world? That's one. Two, I think most people could benefit by learning slower, diaphragmatic breathing, calm, easy breathing. And it's a pattern, most of it, which babies have, where their stomach gets bigger when they inhale, the stomach gets smaller when they exhale, they have a Buddha body, if you look at a little baby. And how can I allow my stomach to bubble out again, which is very challenging for most people because it's self-image. They've had past surgery to that area, et cetera. But when you do that, it is a way to restore yourself. Practicing some breathing techniques like this is very useful. Observe your internal language. What do you focus on? Are you focusing on mainly the negative quality? It's useful to think of negative qualities, but what are you rehearsing mentally? Every thought has a corresponding body activity. Do focus your change in your thoughts. That's the whole part of many of the meditation traditions of prayer, what people may be doing. It's unimportant. Before going to sleep, use the time not to watch the latest news where you get frustrated about the Ukrainian war or whatever is going on or another burglary in your neighborhood. Do not watch the news or turn it on, but do something soothing, maybe some fun reading, lighthearted reading or whatever, etc. Be sure that at night that the lights turn down, which is hard in our electrified world. Those are pragmatic pieces. In terms, observe when you're reacting to people. How are you reacting? Do you find you feel yourself stomach slightly tightened to protect yourself? Is it necessary? Are they really a, the tiger that's going to kill you or are you reacting? And we can learn to practice to do that differently. And then finally, when you work with people who are challenging, which we all have, people just go, <laughs> you just react to these triggers automatically. It could be a family member. It could be a coworker. The moment you anticipate, you already anticipate them at when you're waking up in the morning. Remember, when you wake up, take a breath, put your feet on the ground, and we say to yourself, today is a new day. And most people don't see it that way. They see today as the old day being repeated. It is a new day. And then when you think of that person, even the first premise of that thought, take a low breath, and then just maybe think of someone who you feel love from, like your grandmother or an aunt or someone like that, not your spouse or not your kids even, because at times you want to just <laughs> twist them around. But take somebody you have that kind of inner smile with. Think of that for a moment. Then think of that person who you have chance and just put your hand on your heart. Don't send them love. Just send them goodwill. As if like imagine a wave going out. And that's like a mudra in many traditions. Each time you think of that person, instead of escalating that thought, they just keep ruminating negatively. Stop. Take a breath, put your hand on your heart, and then like an ocean wave, just wish good luck. Because in each human being, there is a Buddha nature, Christ nature, human nature, whatever is your belief structure. But I happen to believe that each of us have some part that is really positive and growing. And I imagine sending support to that. And I've been very impressed when people do this. In about three months, there's a difference in relationships. It quiets them, it may affect the other people but we know we are contagious. Thank you. Yeah, I'm so glad you gave us that tutorial. And in addition to FlowMD, are there other 
technologies that people should be aware about that can help them as they're on their own journey to reduce tech stress? The one I really like, FlowMD, I think the Upright Go, I think is really useful as a device for monitoring. There are many other ones. Then for learning slower breathing, there are many apps that will look at heart rate variability, just like FlowMD does. And some of them will use a sensor you put on your finger. And that will also be very helpful. They all focus on breathing. It's called resonant frequency, but really it's probably around six breaths a minute, maybe 5.5 breaths, where you inhale and the exhalation, you let it trail off it's almost twice as long. And it's been interesting when we do that with our students, our women's students, that those who have menstrual cramps, that when they practice this a lot, which is really a different way of breathing, before they have the cramps and during, and when they start having the cramps, they lie down and do it, you see about an 80% reduction in symptoms. Wow. And what are those apps called that help people monitor their heart rate and heart rate variability? I think just search for heart rate variability. I'm thinking that folks who are listening at home are thinking, how can I find a practitioner who can help me learn to do this and become aware of my own body patterns? How would you advise someone to go about doing that? In terms of the area of biofeedback, there is a association called the Association for Applied Psychophysiology and Biofeedback, AAPB.org. They could then look under practitioners or for the public. There are many people in terms of breathing, there are many people who teach breathing. And I think you want to do it effortlessly. If people want to get some ideas of breathing, I have a blog called pepperperspective.com. That's pepper with one P in the middle, P-E-P-E-R, perspective. And if they search on the breathing, then there are a number of guided instructions as well as case examples where people have reported remarkable changes. I think everyone can learn the skills. I think, to me, you want to first work on things you can do to optimize your health, but keep the evolutionary perspective in mind. Ask yourself, how am I apart from my evolutionary background? And I don't think wearing a very tight belt was part of my evolutionary background. That means I breathe up in my chest. Think feeling safe in the world like you are a baby, breathe that way. And then every day, it's a rare new opportunity. I'm looking forward to it. And if you keep waking up in the morning and you feel, oh, I'll do this. There's an exercise you can do where you monitor in the morning, how do you feel? And I do this with my students. I ask them, the first day of class, I show two pictures. One is you wake up in the morning, it's like being on a treadmill, oh shit, I have to wake up, I got to do stuff. And the other one is when you're almost like in love. When you're in love, you're anticipating meeting the person, you feel energized. How many of you at this moment woke up this morning and felt like, oh, I'm really excited, looking forward to the day? It's shocking that maybe only about 30 to 40% of the students on the first day of the semester feel that way. Remember, I work in a university where most students have full-time jobs as well. It's challenging, but it's shocking. Because basically, you want to, most days ought to be like that. If you find that you're on a treadmill most days, I would have to argue, you need to look at your life and ask, how can I change? And sometimes it means downsizing. And it's difficult in our economic situation to do that. But is it worth waking up every morning feeling, oh, uh, because when we feel, ah, uh, it impacts our health and social well-being. This has been a masterclass on stress and health and reactivity and taking control. For our folks at home, I want us to summarize what we said in this phenomenal talk today. Can you give everyone the two-minute message that you want them to leave with from this episode? I think the most important part is that we are often unaware 
that we are reacting. Learn some skills by using a diary or self-observation to see where you're reacting and even what the outcomes are. Then two, learn some simple skills like slower breathing, which you can implement. Don't wait till you're totally stressed. You want to become aware of the beginning of the stressor and then react. Three, if the stressor keeps reoccurring time and time again, then you want to say, huh, what do I need to do to change? And if you can't do anything about it, then it's not worthwhile to stress about. And if you can do something about it, then it's also not worthwhile to stress about because then you can solve it. I'm being simplistic. And then finally, remember that we are really wired, not in our modern world, but we're still wired as 40,000 years ago. We're still reacting as if the signals are danger. Remember, we are wired in our bodies as if we are prey. We were always being hunted by other animals. We were great food. It's only in very recent times that we have become the masters of the universe, however badly. But before that, our bodies and our minds react as if we are prey. Keep that in mind. Therefore, to be safe is critical. Create a world where you feel safe. That doesn't mean you shouldn't explore, you shouldn't have adventures. But to regenerate, give yourself the opportunity to feel safe and give yourself much more time to regenerate. And what many of us do to regenerate is that we sit in front of television or watching streaming videos. But really, they're not as much. They can help. They'll stop our thinking. But maybe take a walk in nature, walk in the trees. That's going back to our evolutionary background. Because when we walk in nature, we both inhale all kinds of chemicals which are healing, which are antibacterial. Our eyes can look at a far distance. And then if it works, do it with others. We are social critters and develop a very strong social support system. That means, are you supporting others? Are you available for others? And if the answer is not, no, work on those connections. Because we know people who have strong social support as they get older are happier and healthier. Thank you, Dr. Eric Pepper, for joining us on the Root Cause Medicine podcast today. We will see you again soon. Oh my goodness. Thank you so much for listening to today's episode. We have one quick favor to ask you before you go. If you loved today's conversation, would you mind leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you're listening on right now? Our whole goal is bringing this education to the people who need it. And positive reviews are actually the number one thing that help new people discover the show. You're amazing and we so appreciate it. We'll catch you next time on the Root Cause Medicine Podcast.